Hello, and welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, listen local, think global. This is our third season bringing you the literary life from off the beaten path. I am your host, Tannis MacDonald. The founder of Watershed Writers is the multi-talented Francis Roberts Riley, who serves as the show's producer and the person who keeps the wheels on the bus. The fab John Roscoe takes care of all of our tech needs, and we are very happy to be partnered with Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo, where Matt Rappolt makes sure our stories make it to the air. We have two guests on this episode of Watershed Writers talking about the book that they have written together. Clarence Kakaji and Seth Ratzlav are the co-authors of a memoir about Clarence's life, a book that is a mere eight weeks old but has already been making its way around the world. The book is called North Wind Man. Clarence Kakaji originates from Chaplow Cree First Nation in Northern Ontario and calls Waterloo Region his home. Clarence has worked for a variety of social service organizations in the field of homelessness, supportive housing, and education, with a focus on supporting Indigenous communities. Most recently, Clarence initiated Crow Shield Lodge, a nonprofit Indigenous organization and now works as its executive director, focusing on land-based healing and teaching for people of all nations. Seth Ratzlaff is an emerging writer based in Kitchener. He holds a master's degree in peace and conflict studies from the University of Waterloo and has been involved in a variety of grassroots initiatives focused on the writing and the arts. North Wind Man is their first book and is published by Galassen Height Publications. Welcome Clarence and Seth to Watershed Writers. Thanks for having us, Tannis. Yes, what an experience. Uh, <laughs> Seth and I are very excited. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I've spent quite a bit of time in the last week with your book, North Wind Man, and I'm interested in talking about the process of writing this and, of course, uh, Clarence, your your journey to getting to uh, the founding of Crow Shield Lodge and, of course, to writing this memoir. So the very first thing I want to ask you about is the fact that this is a memoir. It's a memoir about your life, Clarence, but you two are co-authors of it. And you spend a little bit of time at the beginning of the book talking about that co-authorship process. I think it's that's a fascinating kind of partnership. And I want to hear a little bit more about how you arrived at that. And of course, for our listeners who are interested in what it means for two people to write a book together. So uh, what can you tell me about how you arrived at this partnership? For many years, once I found my voice, people said, Clarence, you have a story. You have a story. It, you should start telling it. You should share it. You should get it out there. I am not a writer. I have struggled my whole life with the English language, writing it and, and following it and and reading, I struggle with that. It's just not the way that I absorb knowledge. Saying that, I wanted to figure out how I could put a book together. And the only way that I could do that was with the help of, of somebody else. That was the journey I went on, trying to find that special person 
to walk with me on putting this book together. It didn't take long until the right opportunity, the right day, the right time was right in front of me. And it was Seth. And, and that's how our, our relationship started over a couch. And it blossomed from there. So I can't say enough about how honored I am to walk with Seth through these seven years together, putting this book together. Seth, how about you? I also feel very honored to have been part of this journey with Clarence. This was the first book project I worked on when Clarence asked me to help him write his, his story. To be honest, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but we have the foreword in the book that kind of gives this dialogue of how our relationship started and how we work together. But it, it was essentially becoming friends and sitting down, having dinner and uh, talking it through, brainstorming, coming up with uh, different ideas, trying, experimenting different ways of writing. I remember I was looking back at my, uh, my old early writings for this and it's really crazy how far it's come like what we originally started doing to what we ended up with is very different that's a, a bit about the working relationship was just kind of this uh friendship that uh turned into this creative partnership that's great i i really like the fact that you mentioned that it took seven years to write this book because i know that sometimes people think oh you know Writing a book, uh, that's a year, right? And I think for some people, maybe, but most of us take five years plus to put a whole book together. And that's because no one is sitting down and writing for 16 hours a day. You have other things you're doing. Um, you're spending time with your family. You're working a day job. And you are meeting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, right? So I appreciate the idea that you started with one idea about what this book was going to be, and it ended up very differently. Can you say something about uh, something that didn't make it into the book that you uh, thought was going to be important and then turned out not to be? You know what was really different was just the writing style. We didn't know how to capture Clarence's voice and honoring that voice, preserving it in a way in a writing form was sort of this thing we were grappling with for a long time. We talk about in the forward we considered using first-person narration. And it just quickly became apparent that that was not going to work. It felt weird, um, me writing in first person. Yeah, you're talking about how long it takes to write. And then when you're working with someone, you need to do the writing together. And so then you only have that time together. So eventually settling in on that quotation of Clarence speaking interspersed with a third-person narration, that was the big breakthrough that kind of finally... It was like, oh, this is how we can do it. And this works. I enjoyed the way it seemed to me like a like a documentary film but with a narration in, in the background. And I felt like I was in those interstitial bits where I heard uh, Clarence's voice. I felt like all of a sudden the camera's on Clarence and he's speaking and then the camera's going back to uh, being the background storyteller piece. And I, I, I think that did, does work really well in the book. And I, I suggest that our listeners um, check the book out to see how, how that works for themselves. I'm interested in this uh, idea of the trust between you. And I, I want to pursue something that Clarence said. It said your relationship started out on a couch. You two were sitting somewhere and started talking about, uh, about a memoir or, or what? 
our, our relationship did start with me trying to purchase a used couch at one of the uh, Worth a Second Look, at, which is run by the Working Center. And at that time, Seth was managing that, that store. And I was going in there. I was working for the House of Friendship. I was an intensive housing worker, and I just managed to get someone housed. And I was in there looking for furniture. And so I like to I like to haggle. I like to barter. I like to try to cut deals. And I said, well, where's the manager? Um, I'd like to get by this couch, but I'd also like to talk to him to see if we could reduce the price. That's how our relationship started. Uh, it wasn't really it, it was kind of it wasn't really an equal relationship. When we met, it was just there was some kind of chemistry there. Just like when we first saw each other, he was interested in what I was doing. I was interested in what he was doing. Our spirits connected. There was a spark. And then from there, we just wanted to get to know each other. And it was really strange. And it just worked out so beautifully. And everything just organically fell into place. Seth, anything to add? <laughs> and, and also, I want to know, did you get a good price on the couch? Oh, he got a deal, but you're, you're not supposed to negotiate prices at a thrift store. Come on. So from the haggling over uh, the couch to the co-writing process, and I wanted to know a little bit about, especially Clarence, since you mentioned that your relationship with reading and writing has often been a struggle in your life. Why is it that you wanted to write a book in particular, as opposed to doing speaking engagements, as opposed to, well, you know, doing almost anything else. Because I get that telling your story is an important part of healing, but how come a book that's published between two covers and printed and going out into the world without you? And I think you just said it right there, Tannis, going out into the world. Like I do a lot of public speaking. I, I do a lot of engagements. I'm here. I'm there. But I thought, how can the book get out to the world? It's already in Australia. So that's, that's a fine example of how it can really travel far and wide, farther than, than I can with, uh, with speaking engagements, farther than I can with uh, you know, doing recordings or, or, or doing things here and there on social media. That book is traveling and, and it just makes me feel so amazing that it's already there. It can travel farther, it can travel broader, it can travel faster, um, and it can, it can really get out to the masses more than I can. And it has only been out like six weeks, two months? Two months, yeah. Yeah, so that's fast, right? Yeah. yeah, so it exists in the world, it exists in the world because of you, but it also exists in the world uh, apart from you, right? So yeah. there's that whole idea of it traveling, of this, this story getting uh, spread everywhere else. All right, so, so Clarence, I wanna ask you a little bit about the core of this book is really uh, about resilience and resurgence. And that's, you know, I took those, those words right from your book. So coming to Indigenous identity and learning and teaching from, uh, from that place. And um, one of the things that you say early in the, in the book, and I think you repeated a couple of times, is that it's ordinary to be broken. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was very much struck by that. And it may be because I, I work with a lot of young people who are sure that it is not ordinary to be broken. So can you tell me a little bit about coming up with that phrase and if it's been a, a kind of touchstone with you with uh, teaching and with healing? 
When I started finding a pathway back to culture, I wanted to invest time in myself. So I, I went and got my grade 12. And then from there, I went into college. And that's where I got that phrase from. One of my professors, Max Solis, he was always talking about brokenness and how it's okay to be broken. And then he would go a bit deeper all the time and he would say, you know what? Like, like really, everybody is broken that we meet. Some people will talk about their brokenness. Some people won't. And that's where he left it. And then that really got me thinking of how that impacted me and how that brokenness weighed on me, how I carried that for a very long time. So then I just started to add to it that it's okay to be broken. Once I came to terms with my brokenness, the shame was lifted and I was able to start working on things that didn't belong to me, that things that were handed down to me from my ancestors. Yeah, and that's really my, my next question, that Northwind Mand is your story, but it's also a generational story. I appreciated the amount of research and the amount of discussion about previous generations that gets put into the story because it felt so unusual to have access to all those stories of generations. Uh, certainly, um, previous generations that been to residential school, lived through it, were, were very much broken by that by that experience and had to live with the, the results. And I note that along with that research that there's archival material from uh, your father that were, was recorded by people at, uh, is it at Algoma University, is that right? Yes, yes. And I thought to myself, what, like, what a find, what a, what a research find and what, what an important piece of this story for you and ultimately for the, the readers as well. Can you say a little bit about finding that material? Yes, that was something just that just happened. The spirit connected with me. I went from my heart to my head. And, and then when Seth and I were writing, I remembered that my dad did a recording with Algoma University back in the early 90s. Algoma University used to be Shingwok Residential School, and that's where my family went. So I reached out to them, and we were thinking, how good would it be? It would be awesome if we can try to weave my dad's voice into this book somehow. So I connected with them, shot them off an email. They said, uh, be patient. Within a couple of weeks, they replied back to me where they did find the, the cassette tapes. And they said, we're going to buy a digital machine to transfer the tapes into a file, and then we'll send those files off to you. Saying that, Tannis, it took me six months to listen to those files. Um, when I got them, I, I sent them off to my, to my sister, to my children, to my half-brother. I had to wait until I was in a best place that I could be to hear my dad's voice again, because I didn't hear it for over, over 20 years. And, and when I heard it, it was, it was a very emotional time. When I heard his story, there were so many parallels, but I could feel the love. I could feel the love and things really started to make sense when he shared his truths to us. Uh, indeed, indeed. And, and of course, some of those truths are, um, are very hard to read. And I, I can only imagine how hard they would be to listen to. I'm just going to toss it to Seth for, for a minute and ask you, Seth, about what it was like to hear uh, this voice of this person that you had been writing about, assisting Clarence in, in writing about. So he was becoming a character in the story, then all of a sudden, it's one more step into the reality of the character that uh, Clarence's father was. How was that for you? I think I heard the recording before we started working on 
chapters about Abby Kakaji. But I remember listening to it for the first time, and it is it is very powerful. It's a very powerful recording. It's very, I don't know what the term for it is, kind of sublime, like having this access to this story from the past. He's speaking so openly and honestly. It's a well-done interview. I, I was impressed because the interviewer doesn't say anything. She just says, yeah, we're just letting people tell their story. And so... You know, you, you can just say what you want to say. And Abby launches into it. And it's I think it's like two and a half hours long of him talking and just telling, sharing about his life. He shares teachings. He shares stories. So what we ended up doing was I transcribed that interview. And then Clarence and I went through it and we chose some excerpts that we thought that it would fit well in the book because of these parallels or just because it was a powerful little story that Abby shared. And for our book launch, we shared the recording of one of the excerpts that we put in the book. And so people could hear Abby's voice. We can share that with you now too, for this podcast. That would be great. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Do you want to tell us what we're going to hear? So this is Abby. He's, he's sort of reflecting on his experience in Shingwak Residential School. He actually went to two different residential school, one called Horden Hall, which is in Moose Factory when he was younger, and then he moved, he was transferred to Shingwak Residential School, which is in Sault Ste. Marie, and now Algoma University. So he was just reflecting on his time there, sort of after speaking about it for a while. He shares about this experience of his grandfather coming to visit him each year at the school. So that's what oh. this is. Okay, this is Abby Kakaji in 1991. But the hardest thing was the loneliness of not knowing you had a home. I, I, I can remember my, my grandfather paddling 900 miles every year to come up to the school fence. And this was around, oh, it would be September, just before September. Yeah, the end of September, he would show up. And I could see him coming over up the embankment and he walked towards the fence. Seen this huge tall man, he was well over six feet. And he had the smell of the bush of fires, of uh, animals to him, to him. And, and he would pass through the fence a little piece of dry meat. He wouldn't talk much. He would just look at us and he'd try to touch us and feel us. Then he would disappear for another year and he did that for six years. He would come up every six years. Every fall, just just half a so we would line up against the fence, four of us, and then he would talk to us in Indian. And sometimes my uncle would come with him, and then he would leave again for another year. But the experience of of that Indian school was was basically loneliness of, of wanting to get away of of wanting family, of wanting uh, to go home, to, to have a place called home. Clarence, I want to come back to the earlier parts of the book where you talk about growing up in your foster family, the Ryers, and what it was like to be raised in that family where you where you knew you were a foster child. You write at one point about sort of the humiliation of being featured in the Today's Child feature in the in the newspaper with you and your sister. 
and also about how you learn to be a child in foster care because um, up to then, you know, it was sort of impossible for you to live without the tension of you know, who was going to take care of you, et cetera. Can you say a little bit more about that? For sure. That time in my life, Tannis, was full of a lot of whys. It was full of a lot of whys. Uh, my sister and I, we became crown wards when I think I was two and she was four, moved into a bunch of different homes. We were even adopted once and then put back into the system until we finally ended up at the Ryers. They had five children of their own. And they were doing the best that they could do with the decisions that they made at that time in their life. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, um, Mennonites, yeah, they were, they were adopting Indigenous children. They were adopting non-Indigenous children. They were taking in foster children. And they were doing really good things. The thing about that is that I, I was never giving any cultural exposure at all. The children's eight knew that, that my sister and I were Indigenous. You know, it, it even says in our records. So growing up there, there was a lot of whys. I knew my sister and I were connected. I knew we didn't belong to that family. So I went looking, and that just started me, getting me thinking at a very young age. Where is my family? Why don't I have a family? Where's my parents? Like, what is going on here? So then I started running away. I started running away, but I don't think I was running away. I think I was running too I was running to find that sense of belonging. I was running to find that community. I was running to find that missing piece at a very young age. And I figured it out when I was about six or seven years old, that something was drastically wrong. And growing up on the farm, I never got hurt. I never got abused. I had a lot of fun. I did things like all kids do. I think the worst thing that I ever did is that I found out that skunks have feelings too. I think that's that's the worst thing I did. And, and skunks have defense mechanisms too. <laughs> they certainly do. <laughs> so things change for you in your early 20s when you meet your father. Mm. The episode in the book seems to come out of the blue. You're not searching actively for him, but your sister finds him and you all meet. That's that's quite a moment, right? And I think about that moment when you're talking about you're finding a way back to culture and your father's role in, in assisting you with that. That was quite the experience. My sister was a punk rocker. So she used to go to places like the back door and um, back in the day, back in the 80s, I'd stay away from there because uh, that wasn't my scene. My scene was more metal and heavy metal. Saying that, a story came together in Toronto and it was relayed to my father. And he found out that uh, my sister was living in Kitchener and that she was possibly a punk rocker. So he drove down here, found some punk rockers right away, asked them if they know who she is. And within minutes, it all came together. It was uh, a Saturday night when I was 20 years old, where she gave me a call and said that she's coming over with someone. And I, I said, who? And she said, our dad. And I went, yeah, whatever. And she goes, no, I'm coming over with our dad and I'll see you in about 20 to 30 minutes. And sure enough, uh, she walked through the door with our father and there was no denying it. We look like him, but he apologized straight off the bat. But I was, I was in this stage of caution i was in this stage of of disbelief so i said to my dad i said to our dad i don't know whether to hug you or to punch you right in the face it's great that you're here now but where were you where were you 
Uh, and then all those whys, slowly, God answered. I'm interested too, you begin to uh, connect uh, with your Indigenous culture when you, uh, you uh, hear from your father and he begins part of his teaching you and uh, his brother's involved with that as well, right? Your uncle? Yes, I have a bunch of uncles that, that were involved in uh, teaching me and helping me out and, and a very close cousin of ours, uh, Johnny, who was uh, a traditional man. My, my father was still living with the uh, after effects and traumas of the residential schools that he was in. So he was coping. My dad was coping. So when you cope and you use things to help you cope, you have to stay away from the ceremonies and medicines. So what my dad taught me was, was very, very small. But what he gave me was a connection. He gave me belonging. He gave me community. And he gave me that peace that was missing, even though he's not here anymore. And I, and I always have to thank him for that. Indeed, very important. So you're, you're bringing up the question of substance abuse yeah. and uh, your, your father's um, experiences with addiction and of course your own as well. And that's a big part of this memoir. So much of moving through those years where uh, you were using, and then you had a decision. The decision took more than one try, the decision to become a helper and an educator, mm -hmm. right? So it's not one of those things where you decide and then it happens. You decide and then it doesn't happen, and then you decide again and it doesn't happen. And I think this was really testament to the idea that change is absolutely possible, but it's not instantaneous. It comes slowly. It comes piece by piece. And can you say a little bit about that, about, yeah, your decision to uh, to stop using and to become a helper and an, an educator? That was one of the hardest choices in uh, times in my life is when I put the, the dope down and when I put the plug in the jug. I always knew deep down inside of me that I wanted to help people. And I think that's because of the certain times that led me up to that time where, where there was so many people in my life that, that took the time to help me. And I remember how that impacted me and how that made me feel. And I wanted to find a way to give that back to the people. But it wasn't gonna be easy because I was caught, I was coping. Uh, it's not that I had a drug or alcohol problem, I had a living problem. And, Drugs and alcohol helped me cope with life. If I wanted to be a helper first, I had to get that under control. And you are right. It took me years and years and years and years and years of trying and trying and trying. The analogy, you can use it as, uh, as smoking, right? It's one of the hardest things to stop doing. I managed to do it like eight years ago, but it, I had to really work on it. I had to work on it every day, cut down on my nicotine, nicotine, nicotine. And then before I knew it, it wasn't part of my routine anymore. Drugs and alcohol, man, when I started using, I stopped growing. I stopped developing. I stopped maturing. So when I made that decision to stop, that was hard. And I couldn't do it by myself. So that's where I had to go into treatment centers. I had to take myself out of the environment, get into a clean, safe environment where I could really start working on myself. But then that doesn't even address the trauma that I've been carrying for, for, for decades and, and years and years and years. That was another stage where I went into a healing lodge. I really take your point that when you started using, you stopped maturing, right? 
And then so it, it's sort of a, a lesson in becoming a, a late stage adult, you know, as, as you do this. And I also noted that your first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous was not good. And can you say a little bit about that? It's, it's kind of like a horribly comic moment, right? It was not a good experience. I had doubts. I, I did not want to go, but I knew I had to go. I knew this was a place that could offer me support. And, and I remember walking to that group the first time, and it was uh, in a little alley, and there's all kinds of people outside smoking and laughing and giving hugs, and here I am scared. But I knew I had to be there. And that was a time in my life where I was really challenging myself. I was challenging myself that I can do anything I put my mind to, even though I was at the very early stages of, of abstinence. I went into that AA room, scared, looking around. I went into the second room and I just, if there would have been more rooms, I just would have kept going. But there was only three rooms and that's as far as I could go. So I had to sit there and I was scared. I was shaking. You have to read. Um, I didn't want to read. And then this guy just called me out. He called me out, you know, because uh, he asked why I'm here. And I just said, I think I just, I, I can't remember what I said, but I said, I think I have a problem or I'm just checking this out. And he goes, whatever. He says, if you're here, you have a problem. It's time for you to get serious. And that gentleman planted a seed in me. It was kind of shaming because he did it in front of a whole bunch of people, called me out, but he was right. He was right. And I think that shame came from because he was right. It's not that he was putting me down. He was just calling me out and saying what he sees. Why? Because he's been there. And it's all about the newcomer. It's all about the newcomer. So saying that, it, <laughs> I didn't go back for many years. But I did eventually make my way back. I did the 12 steps. I have my one-year chip. And I go AA every now and again. But once I found spirituality... That's in, in a pathway back to culture that has really helped to align me as a helper. Now, speaking of that path back to spirituality, I, I want to hear um, in your own voice uh, some of what went on on this um, very important canoe trip. And I think it's, it's kind of a, a turning point in the memoir. And I think it's important because it comes after, you know, again, a number of attempts uh, and a number of, of ways that you are, are trying to, to limit your alcohol and drug use and you're successful sometimes and not successful other times. But then, uh, then you get a chance to go on this canoe trip that is very much about the healing process. Can you, uh, can you tell us about the canoe trip and especially about the turtle? Yes, the canoe trip, that was, I think I was at uh, 174 King uh, Mainstream Treatment. I was in there for maybe a month. And then this opportunity came where these guys were all going canoeing because I was so new and I didn't have, I had restrictions on me. I couldn't go anywhere, but all these other guys were leaving. And then a couple of people canceled. And then an opportunity came for me to go on this canoe trip. You know, it was kind of strange because uh, I didn't know if I was going to come back from this trip because I've never done this before. I'm in early recovery. So all of the valuables that I had, I talked to my roommate and I said, bro, if I don't make it back, can you make sure that my children get these things? And I didn't have anything. I had a couple of rings, maybe a watch and, and some other stuff. I went on that trip. It was amazing. That was where I started to feel my connection to creation. I started to feel like I did when I was a child, that being out in the land is a place where I need to be. 
And I started exploring just like I did when I was young. So, you know, we canoed and we canoed and we canoed and it was hard and, and it was cold and, and it was rainy. But there was some beauty to that where I could get up early and just find myself, go for walks. And then while I was exploring on, on one of these days when we were canoeing on one of these islands, I'm taking pictures with a, with a camera one of the guys gave me. And then I can see something white on, the, on, this, on this pier on the tip of the island. So I make my way over to it. And it's a small bleached white turtle shell. That's all it is. There's <laughs> nothing inside of it. It's just bleached white turtle shell. So I look at it and I'm going, I think this is for me. So I take it and I, and I walk back to where the camp is and I talk to the counselor and he said, yeah, Clarence, you were supposed to find that. And I kept that turtle shell probably for about a year or two. And then I met, met up with one of my original teachers, uh, Gerard Sagassier, and I told him the story about that. And he says, can I take that shell and make a shaker out of it for you? And he did. And it was amazing. The beautiful thing about that is that I have an understanding that nothing in, in life belongs to me. I met another one of my teachers, Mayingen Henry, and uh, I got to work with him at Conestoga College. He left the college and I wanted to give him something very special. So I gave him that shaker. Yeah, I had it long enough. It helped me out. Now I can pass it on and it can help somebody else out. That's great. I love that. I think it is time to hear another piece of the book. Yeah, I think that's great. I think I have a part here that I can read. It blends into smudging, but what I'm going to read is a prayer part. And then I pray. I pray for the ones who are lost. I pray for the ones who are broken. I pray for the ones who are taking their last breaths. I pray for the ones who are caught in the grips of addiction. I pray for the ones who are grieving. I acknowledge and I ask for forgiveness for all the ones that I have wronged, all the ones that I have hurt, all the ones that I have done unjust things to. And then I also acknowledge and pray for the ones who have helped me, all the ones that have been there for me, all the ones who have walked with me, all the ones who have supported me, all the ones who have never given up on me, because those are the ones that I think really influence me to do the work that I do today. I always remember, I always wanted to be a helper. I always knew that I was good with people and people used to say, Clarence, man, you're good with children. You really work good with children. I'm not at that stage yet. I don't know if I'll ever be at that stage where I can work specifically with children. I really enjoy working with men. But I knew the only way that I could become a helper is that first, I had to help myself. I knew I had to practice what I preached. But I really enjoy doing the work that I do. I have my bad days. I can see sometimes where judgment washes into my thoughts. Sometimes I question the motives of men I work with. Sometimes I stereotype them, but it's only for a split second. And then I catch my judgment thoughts. And when I do, I can always usually divert them and come back to the sacredness of life. How everyone is a sacred part of creation and how it's ordinary to be broken. 
Great. I'm, I'm very glad you read that piece. And I'm very appreciative of this idea that you are looking at what, what you're good at, right? And you like working with the men and that you acknowledge your own limitations in doing that. And I think sometimes we ask too much of ourselves. We ask that we be perfect human beings 100% of the time. And I, you know, and I think this ties in back to back to shame, right? This idea of that we're not allowed to make mistakes. There's no living in the world, right? Because we're all flawed human beings, but that doesn't mean we can't be out there doing the good that we can do. So I say all of that, uh, thinking about mm, what you referenced earlier about what it took for you to find your voice. So We've talked about um, recovery from addictions. We've talked about finding, uh, about um, meeting your father. Uh, yeah, so the finding the voice. What do you think of as your voice? We've just heard your, your prayer piece that you wrote for the book. But when you say finding your voice, what do you think of specifically? The connection from my voice to my heart, where I don't speak from my head. I don't have notes when I go and speak. All of that I do is I walk up to podiums and I'm holding a feather. And that feather means truth. So that truth comes from my heart, not from my head when I speak. It's a very, very different way to speak because we're all conditioned to go to our head first. But our head, this is what, what puts barriers. This is what instills fear. This is what holds us back in life. So once I came to that understanding, I had to face all those fears. I had to stand up there alone. But I had to do that in a way that would condition me to be the speaker that I am today. Yes. And of course, you also received a, a name, a name that is, well, the title of this book, right? North Wind Man. Because I think I think of finding your voice and finding uh, and receiving the name in conjunction with each other. But, you know, is, is that your experience? I found my voice first and then came the name and it, it happened all around the same time. I had an opportunity at the healing lodge I went to, to go into a sweat uh, with an elder and I offered him some tobacco, Peter Linkletter. I said, if you have the time, could you gift me with a spirit name? Because that name is, it's who we are. It's a connection to us in the spiritual world. It's a connection to us in the creator. It's a connection to us and our ancestors. And we live that name. And, and it takes us a while to figure out and find out what that name really means to us. Tiwe Tinwe in the Ne is North Wind Man. And what happens when that North Wind comes? It brings change. So that's who I am. Why am I here? I believe I was given a second chance at life. And all that the Creator wants from me is to instill positive change, big or small, in myself, in the community that I live in, and in creation. And what is my purpose in life? To bring people together. All of those things are connected to that name. And saying that, it took me a long time to put all that together from just getting that name. Yeah, it's like getting the name is the, it's the impetus to figure out what it means, right? It's, it's your chance to go, all right, how, now how does, this, how does this work in my actual life, my day-to-day -day life, right? <laughs> and I think it's interesting that, you know, we've been talking a, a little bit about the 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 co-writership of this book and you said uh, part of your mission in life is to bring people together and i think you bringing uh, yourself together with uh, with seth i think is uh, very much aligned with with this idea i've uh, already quoted you on it's ordinary to be broken but i was also struck by something that you say a little later in the book about it's never too late to have hope 
which I think is a, a great thing to see uh, written down in black and white on a page. You also note that there, one of the reasons you say that is that you meet a lot of people in your life who say that it is too late for them. I wanted to know, in your experience, why is it that people keep coming back to this idea that too much time has been spent and that it is too late for them? What are they, what kinds of beliefs are they leaning on to think about that idea of too late? It could be conditioning. It could be fear. It could be barriers, it could be self-esteem, it could be confidence, uh, it could be courage. All of these things lean towards it being too late to change, for it being too late to see that little glimmer of light in that darkness. If the creator would have said that, we wouldn't be here today, because it all started with a little glimmer of light when creation happened. And I don't know why I kept that hope. I kept that hope because I knew there was a better way to live. And I knew I had responsibilities, not only to myself, mainly to my children, you know, and, and to creation. And I don't know where that happened. I don't know where that came into me. But I think that was the beginning where the clouds started lifting from my head. And I started to be open to start getting spiritual messages coming in. And it was foreign, and it was kind of different and scary. But these messages would come to me, and sometimes I'd discount them. Sometimes I would push them away. But other times they would come to me, and they would make so much sense about Clarence, man. You've done enough. You know, if you stay on this pathway you're on, you're going to die. You're not going to be here very much longer. And that you have responsibilities. Indeed. And I think um, this is a, a perfectly good time to start talking about uh, how you came to, to found Crow Shield Lodge and the kind of day-to-day -day work that, you, that you're doing there. Oh, finding Crow Shield Lodge came from a vision. Um, when I went away to treatment, I saw how it really benefited me and benefited other people by going into these safe places that were connected to culture, that were connected to ceremony, and where we could find that connection back to self. But in order to do that, we had to work on our trauma. We had to work on the things that were holding us back in life. We had to get a solid foundation under us in order to move forward. And that's, that's what these treatment centers did for me, right? 174 King, Native Horizons, dealt with the trauma, and then Kiki Kawanakin helped with the spirit name. With seeing that and experiencing that, I wanted to try to duplicate something similar and give it back to the people. So that's where Crow Shield Lodge came in. It, it was all about bringing people back to the land. When you bring people back to the land and when they connect with that land, eventually they will make that connection to themselves. And because we're land-based people, indigenous people, we're land-based people, we're always traveling on the land. The land is us. All of our ceremonies come from the land. All of our, our names, our, our, our medicines, uh, everything is land-based. I figured, let's, let's try to figure this out. So I just started talking to some people, some friends of mine, and I asked, uh, where can we do this? Is there a potential to do this anywhere in Waterloo Region? Some friends uh, directed me towards Guelph. We started a relationship with Aramosa Eden, a retreat center. We built a healing lodge, a teaching lodge. We built a sweat lodge. And it was working really good for a while. We were on the same path. And then for whatever reason, we weren't on the same path. 
And that's okay because things change, you know, in people's lives, organizations, things happen. So then we wanted to find a way to bring the lodge back to Waterloo Region. And then we changed the name. We brought in a bunch of non-Indigenous people, stepped up to the plate to help us out with, uh, with becoming a registered nonprofit. And then they helped us out with becoming a, having charitable status. And Dennis, everything just started to align the way that I thought and the way that I hoped. So bringing it back to Waterloo Region and plus the time and, and the children, how the children woke everyone up, it was just the right thing to do. And that's what we do at Crochet Lodge. We talk about doing the right thing. We talk about the truth. We never blame or shame anybody, um, but what we do is we call them in to have those hard conversations. And it's been working amazingly. And how long has it been open, just for our readers who, who don't know about it? Just over two years, two years, two and a half years, it's been open. We have two land-based sites, one in New Hamburg, one at uh, in Kitchener at the Ken Sealing Museum. In 2023, I hope to, uh, to find another land-based site in Waterloo. And then in 2024, I hope to acquire a land-based site in Cambridge. And we've been working with an architect. We have renderings to go. We want to bring a healing lodge to this region for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to heal together. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, this is a, a conversation where we can have uh, hear a little bit from Seth, too, because I think very much of your, your writing partnership for non-Indigenous people an exercise in, in allyship, demonstrable uh, allyship. And you were just talking about having a non-Indigenous people in the healing at the lodge. So... Yeah, talk to me about allyship in the region, what's working and what isn't, and ultimately what you'd like to see. So what's working? Seth and I are a prime example of allyship, of two nations coming together, two nations finding equality within their own space and, and having an understanding to work towards a common goal. Allyship is alive. It's, there's so much going on in our region. The Fennings, uh, their allies uh, in New Hamburg. When we connected with them, it was the right time that they were hoping to do something with the Indigenous uh, organizations within our region. When I talk about the region, our second site is on regional property. So, you know, that's, that's allyship right there. That was interesting trying to broker that deal. It took two, two and a half years of constantly going back to the region, um, sitting with them, talking with them, leaning in, um, inviting them out and, and just trying to find that common ground about where, what we were doing and what we're hoping to deliver to the community would be an investment not only for the Indigenous people, but for the non-Indigenous people. Crochet Lodge sits on four pillars, which is healing, education, land stewardship, and reconciliation. I threw that last one in there, reconciliation, to stimulate conversation. I believe allyship is a conduit to reconciliation. There has to be so many people as allies for us to get there. But we're not there yet. Where we're at right now, is the truth part of reconciliation. There has to be so many more truths talked about and, and people have to unlearn what they learn because some of it is not concise. Some of it is not true, you know? 
So what we've done at Crochet Lodge, we've connected with a whole but 600 people um, from our region, over 600 in the past two years. A lot of the work has been done on healing and allyship. And what we do with allyship, we give them attainable allyship actions where they can start. We give them a starting point. I think that's what a lot of people want, right? They're like, I, I, I want to help, but I don't know how, right? I want to be an ally, but it has to be more than just a state of mind. It has to be action in the world, right? And that's a verb. Allyship is a verb, right? So yeah. it, it is It is about action. Cool. Let's let's pass this to Seth now. And, and what do you think? We've been talking about allyship in the region and your position as a, an ally in uh, being a writing partner. Has this you know, shifted the way you've been thinking about uh, your Mennonite heritage throughout the, the writing of North Wind Band, and of course, through, uh, you know, the kinds of reactions that the book's getting? I mean, the short answer is for sure. It's, it's changed the way I think about my heritage, the way I think about my position and being here in the, in the Waterloo region. It's funny, the, the conversation about allyship this does come up often when we share about the book in circle or at different engagements. And I've commented to Clarence before that it actually feels pretty ordinary to me that, you know, what we did, it feels like we just became friends. I don't actually have a lot to say about it. I think the mutual respect is really important. The equal relationship the kinship that is active throughout. It helped us be really open and honest with each other throughout this. And that means saying when we disagree, right? Because we have to make a lot of big and small decisions. And so just being able to have those conversations and express your feelings, but also be you know, respectful of other perspectives. I mean, I think that was... I guess I think that's the the big part of it. In terms of the Mennonite heritage, it's a complicated thing. I didn't grow up really feeling like a, a strong connection to being Mennonite. I grew up in an evangelical Christian tradition, um, and and being Mennonite wasn't really a focus. But uh, later in life, I uh, went to University of Waterloo and stayed in Conrad Grable University College, and that's where I was exposed to like being Mennonite as more of a group identity thing and realize that you know, there's like some belonging there, that there's inside jokes, uh, there's trust, you know, and that kind of feels good. It feels good to belong to a group. So that was new to me. But uh, I also, you know, had my hangups with the community. Mennonites are kind of are pretty socially conservative, but I hadn't thought much about the history of Mennonites and their involvement in larger systems of colonization. Um, and so that was new. And that really definitely threw me a curveball when, when we started doing that research and I started thinking more critically about all that. Yeah, I mean, Mennonites, I was taught were pacifists. And that was a big thing that they like to um, brag about is, is that sort of uh, pacifist tradition, nonviolence, but when you start to really look critically at the history, it's clear that Mennonites are very much implicated in, in the violence of, of colonization and colonialism. And some of the more progressive circles in the community are, are definitely acknowledging that and starting to have conversations probably over the past couple decades. 
but it's still new to a lot of Mennonites. I mean, when we, we, we shared at a few different Mennonite churches when we were writing this book and had some interesting conversations. Now, I know that you have defined yourself uh, in, in on the back cover as a writer who's an, interested in exploring the intersection of storytelling and peace. And the questions that I that I often ask at the at the end of uh, such an interview for Watershed Writers is what people are working on now. And we've heard about some of the projects that uh, Clarence is doing at Crucial Lodge. And I want to give you the opportunity, Seth, to say something about what you're thinking of writing next. Uh, it's cruel to say what you are writing next when you just had a book come out, yeah. but what you're thinking of writing next, where you'd like to go next writing wise. I like the idea of multiple authors or multiple voices in storytelling. I think it's interesting to acknowledge that really authorship is kind of in a, it's not really true that there's just one author to stories and being more intentional about bringing out other voices. I like that. I was thinking about the concept of hospitality and housing in the region. I'd like to explore stories of hospitality and stories of various forms of housing and shelter. We'll see where that goes. I think there's a lot to say there. That would be a very good project, I think. And Clarence, what about you? Any more uh, co-writing in your future, do you think? It's like I said, I struggled in school. I struggled in college. This was the best experience I've ever had with the English language, you know, reading and writing. I would like my children, my daughters, to, uh, to put a book together to come after North Wind Man. I've talked to them about it, and uh, they're pretty excited because this could be the next generation to share their experiences, but this could be really the next generation to show how we as a family have come together and how we're breaking that uh, intergenerational dysfunction and trauma. They're kind of excited, but I, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. Me, myself, no more writing. I'm, I'm, <laughs> on to, uh, I'm on to creating bigger and better things. If Seth ever asked me to help him out, yes, I will always be there for him. But that's only Seth. That's a privilege only Seth gets. <laughs> that's right. That's okay. right. <laughs> okay, we have, we have time to hear just a little uh, more from the book itself. Who wants to read and what do you want to read? Well, we're actually going to try reading together. Okay. After graduating from Kikiwanakin in February 2011, Clarence had a sense of what he wanted to do moving forward. I was so grateful for the life that was given to me. I wanted to give something back to creation. Clarence had moved into a Waterloo apartment that was subsidized through supportive housing of Waterloo Show, a living arrangement he was very thankful for. Show gave me a sanctuary and a foundation to start building on in order to find purpose, meaning, and direction. Now his plan was twofold. He wanted to become more involved in his community by volunteering, and he wanted to continue learning about his culture and identity. He made sure to keep in touch with friends at the Healing of the Seven Generations, as well as other Indigenous organizations in the region. I was looking for a teacher. It was hard to be patient. It's hard work on yourself to be patient and wait for those right people to come into your life who are going to give you something that is missing. Ceremonies, teaching, stories, and songs, all of these things that help a man to have a good heart and have a good mind. He also went to see an old friend, Jennifer Maines, the coordinator at St. John's Kitchen. He asked her if he could start volunteering at the kitchen. She was receptive of the idea and brought it up at the next staff meeting. 
The staff agreed that Clarence would be a good fit. And in March, he started volunteering three days a week. My job was to serve the people, to work on the floor and to make myself available to everyone who was there. And it was good. It made me feel good to come back to the community and to serve in the community. I felt pretty humbled to be able to come back and work in that element. Jennifer was grateful to have Clarence helping. She recalls that, quote, Clarence brought a gentleness to the kitchen and a respect for the place and an understanding of the culture, unquote. Having a lived experience of addictions and homelessness, Clarence had a knack for supporting people going through similar struggles because he could often relate to what they were feeling. But at the same time, having a past at the kitchen could sometimes complicate old relationships. Many of his friends that he used to drink with still came to the kitchen. I remember when I would see some of my old friends, they would say, Clarence, good for you, buddy, but it's too late for me. I would always say, I'm paving the way for you guys, but it's never too late. What if I would have said it's too late? It's never too late to have hope. It's never too late to heal. It's never too late to forgive. And it's never too late to love. Thanks very much for that, you two. It was great to hear your voices blended together. My last question is, uh, have you been surprised about anything about how this book has been received by readers, readers' reactions to the book? A week before this book was released, I was very stressed out. I've done a lot of speaking. I've, I've done some recordings, but I've never had uh, anything where people can go back and cite what I say. That was really concerning for me. And there's a lot of truths in this book that uh, could impact the way people could look at me. Saying that, that's in the past. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. in my head. That's not yes. in my heart. My heart is to get that book out to the people so that it can help people, so that they can read it, so they can know that they're not alone, and so that they can know that there's a pathway to healing, there's a pathway to understanding, there's a pathway to love, there's a pathway to life. Excellent. Uh, and I'll also tell you that, you know, I'm, I'm the author of seven books, and I feel like that every time a book comes out. The week before is very stressful and lots of being in my head and lots of trying to control what can't be controlled. I want to thank the two of you for, for coming uh, here today and for talking to me about Northwind Man. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having us. It's been great. Oh, my pleasure. And Tannis, I, I want to uh, thank everybody who could be tuning in to this. And I want to thank everybody behind the scenes. I believe the best gift we can ever give is the gift of our time, because it's a piece of our lives that we're never going to get back. So, so Seth and I say uh, thank you, Chimi Gwich, for the gift of time that you're giving us to, um, to listen to this. And you are all beautiful people. Thanks so much. And, and you're, you're very welcome to our time. I want to tell our listeners that uh, we've been talking to uh, Clarence Kakachi and Seth Ratzlaff, and their co-authored book, Northwind Man, is uh, available at all your good independent booksellers. And I know the last time I saw it, it was in Wordsworth Books and Selling Like hotcakes. So please, everyone, get your copy of Northwind Man. If you want to know more about Crow Shield Lodge, go to crowshieldlodge.com to join community events and keep an eye out for their annual fundraiser coming on May 26th. Save the date. 
Watershed Writers comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website, watershedwriters.ca. Our next episode will feature writer and historian Peggy Plett talking about writing Black history in North America and in Grand River Region. Don't miss it. We are produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Uno.